The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guests are the scholars Joan Taylor and Helen Bond, whose new book is Women Remembered, Jesus's Female Disciples. Welcome both. Now this is an extraordinary and ingenious feat of scholarship and extrapolation, because the one thing that really strikes most people really the New Testament, is that it's almost all blokes. What set you off on the idea that there was something more there? I think what set us off was a recognition that there were a lot of stories about women and there's a lot of implied women, but the Gospels tend to shine the light on the men. But if you kind of think we're in a room with a lot of people and the light is hitting the men mostly, but we became aware of all of the other women in the room and we wanted to bring them out of the shadows. And how did you go about that? It's not very easy. I mean, the problem is, as you say, it, the, at first glance, the New Testament seems to be about men and the spread of Christianity through men. But actually, if you look, if you kind of peel back the layers and, and look very, very carefully, there are references to a, a great number of women, actually. I mean, nowadays people are starting to know about Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, but we were actually wanted to not focus on them. And there's all kinds of women. There's women who are described as apostles, who are disciples, women who are teachers, women who are healed by Jesus. And when you start to put them together, we, we devoted a chapter to almost every woman. And, um, you know, there's about 16, 17 chapters. Well, one of the contentions you make, which is a very bold one, is that in the spread of the early church, you say it's possible that they, they kind of went out two by two and that the yeah. apostles who were spreading the faith around in the early church were were sort of working on a buddy system where a man and a woman would go out together. How much evidence is there for that? Because it's a pretty bold claim. In terms of what we've got in the Gospels, there's a very sneaky little thing that, that uh, is in the Gospel of Mark where um, when the 12 male apostles, the envoys of Jesus, are appointed... Mark says they then went out two by two. And I've, you know, looking at that designation of how to uh, just describe them going out, that echoes the language of the ark. Everyone knows animals went two by two. And it was actually understood like that in ancient times. Um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they use the same expression to argue that a man should have but one wife. You know, there should just be a, a male and female going off. So it's not as if it's said explicitly. And a lot of the stuff isn't said explicitly because the early Christians were doing something quite radical in terms of gender, in terms of um, challenging cultural norms. So they had to be careful. Yeah, I mean... The radicalism of 
early Christianity, if it was, as you say, challenging gender norms and the roles of women, you know, at some point, this was, seems to have been retrofitted, you know, so that it was church fathers, so the church became deeply patriarchal. I mean, when did that happen? Was there a point at which it was essentially hijacked and the sort of very patriarchal, you know, medieval church and early modern church kind of created an origin myth that somewhat betrayed what you see as the very original situation? I don't think it was a particular point. It was a gradual process. And, and the thing about the earliest times is that um, the, the, the first Christians thought that the end of the world was on them. You know, it's the end of the world is just around the corner. So they have, um, there's, there's many, many women and groups of women, daughters, sisters, friends, wives, mothers. They're all over the place. Once you start looking for them, the difficulty is, you know, having the eye, having your eyes open and, and seeing what's there. We had to cut some out, actually. We limited our women. <laughs> we, balancing them. You're really, we them. had to be scared. <laughs> We, we don't always know much about them. That that's a difficulty, and that and that's where imagination ca- kicks in. I mean, we're both biblical historians, so we spend all our time in the first century trying to reconstruct the world around Jesus. And most of the time, I suppose I, in particular, do it with with sort of famous men. But it's it's a a really interesting exercise to to work out what women's lives were like in the first century, and then to try and sort of put together what these women might have been doing, what they were allowed to do, how they were useful to the Jesus movement. And particularly when you think the men, because of because of the, the kind of the times, you know, the very patriarchal times, the men, the male disciples couldn't just go to a group of women and start talking. That would have been really terrible in the first century. And so you needed a lot of women as part of your movement just to just to get the message out there. So the more you start to really think yourself into the first century, the more crucial you realise that these women actually were. Actually, in the early church, um, there is quite a lot of evidence for male-female partnerships, celibate partnerships quite often. Um, they were known as agapeti. We haven't got that in the book. And in the fourth century, there were all these sorts of rules and regulations at church councils banning the practice because, you know, it was looked upon very poorly by wider society because you'd think, okay, having this uh, man and woman living together in a celibate partnership could be a little challenging at times. It didn't look good in terms of the eyes of wider society. So the church councils tried to to stamp it out. And to some extent, I suppose these founding stories were lost because of that. I mean, there's still, we think there's still just enough clues there to be able to, to tell the real story, but um, they do get lost. And do, do you have to look for those clues in the, in the, in the Apocrypha, in the, the sort of gospel fragments that are off to one side of the canonical Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? There are some there, but we do spend a lot of time with the canonical gospels. And that's our main interest. We pick over them. We use a a strategy of reading developed by the great feminist historian Elizabeth Schistler Fiorenza, really. You go through different stages of looking at a text, being aware of the gendered 
nature of the text, that uh, it comes from a gendered society, a very different society from our own, being conscious of the, the sorts of expectations people had in terms of gender, and then thinking about, you know, what, what were the real women doing that gave rise to this kind of memory? You have to work carefully with each text. And Helen and I spent a lot of time turning these texts over, didn't we, when we were doing our documentary, uh, Jesus Female Disciples for Channel 4, which is what really you know, kicked this, this off. As we were ourselves driving around Israel, Jordan, waiting at the Allenby Bridge, you know, we were talking about these texts and, and thinking about how we could retrieve the women in these texts. So we veered off from Gospels of the New Testament to look at these different memories as they went through time into the second century, particularly interested in what was happening in some of these other texts. But I think you'll find that our, our main focus is still the Gospels, the New Testament Gospels. There are all these sort of textual cruxes that I find sort of fascinating me. For example, there's a word that means, it's often translated as meaning brothers, but you've found an instance where it can mean siblings, or this idea of the diaconio, which is obviously a very kind of central thing. It can either mean providing for, in the sense of, is that right? In the sense of sort of, you know, doing the catering. <laughs> um, yeah. or, or it can mean ministry, you yeah. know. How kind of well accepted are these these particular cruxes you find or, or counter counter hegemonic readings? They're, they're completely accepted. This this is actually just a feature of Greek. So ancient Greek is like French in that you know if you have a whole load of people, most of them might be feminine, one is male, then the gender is male. So Greek has the same kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a gendered language. So in the case of um, brothers, Adelphoi, that's, it, it simply uses the masculine term, Adelphoi, brothers, to mean a collection of siblings. But actually, we have no idea whether, whether those are all, um, all male or a mixture. I mean, they're obviously not all female, but you know, we don't know how much of a mixture they are. So that's why if you actually look in a, a modern translation, it will nowadays either say siblings, which, which does still sound a little bit strange in English, or more commonly, it'll translate um, brothers and sisters. So they're actually adding the ancestors there to make it clear that uh, this is the trouble too, that women are often masked by these sort of male words. And um, the other one you mentioned, diakoneo, yeah, it does mean providing for, ministered to, doing the catering. Related word means being a servant. And, and it's very difficult to know how to translate these things. And what actually quite often happens is that when these words are used of men, they're translated deacon or minister or something sort of important. And when they're used of women, they're translated, you know, caterer in the kitchen, bustling about. Women are always bustling or busying themselves, you know, these kind of getting in the way, even though they're doing the most important thing, you know, putting food on the table. But actually, quite often, it has nothing to do with putting the food on the table. And it all goes back, actually, to Jesus's teaching. Jesus says, you know, you've got to be like a servant. It's whoever makes themselves like a slave, be servant-like. 
to follow me. And I think it's perhaps no accident that the sort of the terms that early Christians used for the leaders were servants. People were serving others. And, and, and so it makes it very difficult to know what were they actually doing. But just because it's used of a woman doesn't necessarily mean it's not a title. Can I ask to set it in, in historical context a bit? Because you do early on, you have a chapter saying, you know, this is what the gender set up in first century Judea looked like. How how was that set up and how did it change? I mean, one of the things that surprised me, for instance, was that you say that, you know, Jewish women could be ministers of the church, which doesn't seem to be the case with Orthodox communities nowadays. I mean, how equal, how how progressive was first century Judea? Like anywhere in the Greco-Roman world, there was quite a lot of diversity, different opportunities for men and women in different places. But by and large, you've got to think that for the elite, the, the wealthier you were, the more opportunities there were for you as a woman. So if you were well educated, you could become in the Greco-Roman world a Pythagorean. You could, be, as a woman, you could become part of a, a philosophical group. Within Judaism, there was a group often called the Therapeuti, who lived in Alexandria, and there was a group of men and women who were highly educated. They composed music together. They sung hymns together. They did beautiful sacred dancing together, you know, and they were described by the philosopher, a Jewish philosopher, Philo, as living together in this community outside Alexandria. But they're quite an elite group. They knew how to read and, and, and interpret things. So you look at queens like Cleopatra, there was a Jewish queen as well, Salome Alexandra. So when you've got to the upper echelons of society, there was quite a lot of opportunity for women to be in positions of authority. Women could be benefactresses, they could serve in temples, and they could also, from inscriptions, we see that they could be leaders in synagogues. They could do various things in synagogues and what exactly is debated, but they were held in high esteem in, in synagogues. Men and women would get together in synagogues. It was a place where the law was read, prayer, um, like today, you know. So the potentiality for egalitarian ways of operating is there both in the wider Greco-Roman world and in Judaism. But in, in terms of society as a whole, it was very gendered. Men were expected to be brave and out there and potential fighters and in the public sphere and in, in the public spaces. Women overall were expected to focus much more on the home and the family. I mean, these are the sort of things that are actually around with us today. We don't have to say, wow, wasn't it different in the ancient world? Because we've got the legacy of that now. And in many parts of the world, it's, it's very much like it was in the ancient Mediterranean. And is there a sense that the teachings of Jesus, the, the message of the New Testament, provided in some ways a break from that setup or altered it or progressed it? How, did you, how do you see the, there being a hinge there? 
You have to be really, really careful with this, I think. In the sort of the first flush of uh, biblical scholars getting into feminist stuff in the sort of 70s, 80s, I think there was quite a move to see a very repressive Judaism against which Jesus was this great feminist liberator. He was calling women to, to come and do, you know, be part of his group. And then I think there was a bit of a backlash against that because that clearly is quite an anti-Jewish way of looking at things. It's sort of pitting bad Judaism against good Christianity. And I think a lot of the writers at that period were sort of unconsciously painting a very dark and repressive picture of Judaism just so that Jesus's teachings would sort of shine out in comparison. Nowadays, people are very much aware of that problem and, and have been, I think, there's so much more evidence and we're so much better at the way that we look at the evidence and the way we, we've sort of developed these techniques. And so I, I think nowadays it would be much better to say that, of course, Jesus was Jewish. Everything he's doing is within a Jewish context and a Jewish framework. And he's allowed to do these things because he's a first century Jew. So this is a very much a renewal movement that is inspired by and comes from Judaism. So it's, it's his Jewishness that allows him to, to sort of preach in this way. I mean, it's, it's going to be unusual and radical but I think I think where it's most radical is with the Roman world actually I mean particularly what Jesus is saying about be like a servant that's very different to the kind of the Roman idea of chasing glory and honor and you know it's all about this kind of how the world sees you so um, yeah I think it's much better to see Jesus and his movement as part of first century Judaism. Yeah. Now there are some formidable textual difficulties you run up against, one of which, almost comically, is that I think you estimate somewhere that 50% of all women in first century Judea were called Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a lot, and the other half were all called Salome. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, is it possible to disentangle these, these characters? It's very, very difficult, uh, especially the Marys. And we might not have disentangled them. When we get to the point of, of looking at Mary Magdalene, Mary, Mary and Martha, and anointing women, we show how difficult it is, in fact, to disentangle them. And it's complicated by the fact that the Gospels themselves wanted to entangle them. It's almost like some of the Gospel texts aren't that interested in creating a high definition. They're more interested in sort of that saying they might be the same person. So, for example, with, with the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John introduces Mary of Mary and Martha, the sister of, of Martha in Bethany, as saying she was the one who uh, wiped Jesus feet with her hair, that, you know, this is the anointing woman that we've already met. And, in fact, we've only already met her if we've read Luke chapter 7, and it's a real question about whether or not the Gospel of John knew that particular passage or something like that particular passage in introducing Mary. And then there's another woman who anoints Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew in Bethany, but she's not called Mary. She's not named at all. So do we call her Mary or is this another figure entirely? So we have all of these questions about the identity of, of these different women. And you'll probably know, of course, that Mary, the sister of Martha, is often identified with Mary Magdalene. 
And again, that is almost implied in the Gospel of John because Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb when Jesus is said to the woman who anoints him in Bethany in the Gospel of John. Sorry, this is sounding really complicated. Um, <laughs> it's quite complicated. Uh, save it till the time of my burial, you know, save this ointment for the time of, of my burial. So basically, this is just an example of how complex it is. You've got the, all of this, these different stories that, that seem to interweave in our gospel tellings. And how do we unweave them how do we get these different strands out and say now here we have this woman and look what she was doing and she has a definition that we can actually get to yes it's tricky I mean one of the ingenious things you do I think sometimes is, is to say look this woman is introduced just by her name they don't say whose sister she is they don't say what's you know they don't do the usual kind of locating her in a family or in a in a situation and you infer from that that these women are already known to the audience i that they that they've become occluded from the historical record because of all the reasons we've discussed but that at the time they'd have been famous because they were important is that a fair, fair representation of the, the method yes yes we do do that <laughs> Are you always confident in that or is there a case where sometimes you might just think the gospel writer doesn't really know anymore? That is possible. I mean, I, I to talk about confidence, I talk about degrees of confidence throughout. And, and I sometimes there are times when Joan and I are also not entirely on the same page with um, certain women. You know, we might want to see things differently. And that's that's always going to be the difficulty, I think, when you have a dearth of evidence and much of what you're doing is hypothetical or re resting on imagination. So it, I think it, we would want to say it is unusual for women in the first century to be known just by their name. I mean, nearly always they were, you know, the wife of somebody, the mother of somebody, the daughter of somebody. To have no associated thing at all is is strange. You know, why would why would the early Christians remember she was called Salome, for example, but not remember probably the far more common thing that she was known as the the, the wife of I don't know Eliezer or something. I mean, another another option for some of these names is that they were passed down in oral circles by the women themselves, and they may well have been more more commonly using women's given names rather than you know the what the wife of particularly when they knew them well but i wouldn't say we're entirely confident in that but it seemed a reasonable supposition or at least it's it's one we're confident enough to go with they just turn up as certain names and some names just turn up in certain texts and we have know nothing about them like in the second century text there's a reference to mary martha salome and arsinoe arsinoe you know, who is Arsinoe? But clearly that community knew who Arsinoe was, but we, we have no idea. But uh, yes, yeah, so the, there is, a, you have to imagine that this oral tradition marching along through the centuries in the same way that we've got a literary tradition marching along. So we're largely in an oral society in the ancient world. People are communicating things to each other, telling stories, they had a vast knowledge that they were just circulating in, in different communities. And they happened sometimes to write a few things down. 
And we've got, of the few things that they wrote down, a tiny little bit left over. So uh, from these little fragments, we're trying to piece something together. But, you know, as Helen is saying, you know, women talk to each other. (laughs) Women tell stories. Women were gathering at at the waterside, washing clothes and telling stories. And a lot of that was never going to be written down. But they would celebrate certain women that they found very important as models for their own discipleship, for their own Christian life. And so we got to imagine then when we hit these names of women that they're actually going to have all sorts of resonances we can't possibly know. Well, two of the most resonant women, you know, are the ones who even in a, in a less kind of careful reading than yours are the big, the big figures, you know, the two Marys. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene. And what do, does your reading of it change their positions? I mean, the thing that maybe would strike those people is that, that that old, rather misogynist dichotomy of the Madonna versus the whore seems to have been inscribed right there in the, in the original New Testament. Do you see them as, as if you like, retreating slightly back into a, into a larger pattern of women in this book? That's partly what we were trying to do with the book. Um, Because in terms of how women have been remembered in the Jesus movement, you know, there's the big two, as you say, the two Marys, Magdalene and the mother, and both sort of representing different poles of femininity. Um, And actually both of which are, you know, not correct. If you look at the historical record, there's no evidence that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, for example. That's absolutely not there in the texts. It, it, it depends on, on putting together various texts and then making inferences. And also Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, there's no evidence in the New Testament that she was a perpetual virgin either. I mean, that the whole point is that she was a virgin when she conceived, not that she remained a virgin forever in the text itself. I mean, you know, what the text that the Catholic doctrine rests on are, are later than the New Testament. So as a matter of history, I think that sort of popular view is is not there. But one of the things we were very much trying to do is to say it's not just about adding, you know, one woman to the Jesus plus the 12, the sort of Maid Marian character. You know, she's not just the boss's girlfriend, the love interest. There's actually a whole lot more. And with Mary the Mother too, I mean, I think there's more interesting things really from a historical feminist point of view that you can say about Mary. We really don't know anything at all about the history of the birth stories. I mean, if I was a betting person, I would say there's probably very little history there. But she is interesting in that she does crop up in John's Gospel at the cross and she's there in Acts at Pentecost and there are traditions that maybe maybe she she joined the movement later on. Certainly her other son, James, suddenly becomes kind of the leader of the Jewish movement after Jesus's death and resurrection. And the usual assumption there is that he had some kind of resurrection ex- experience. So if if her other son, James, and we argue in the book, her, her daughter, Salome, are also sort of prominent in the movement, quite likely Mary was too, if assuming she's still alive at this point. So 
I think there are interesting things about both of those women. And, and Joan might want to come in and say some. Joan is, is a Mary Magdalene expert. So, um, you know, Mary Magdalene too, I think you can kind of retrieve her from all of this sort of misinformation that surrounded her and actually say much more interesting things about her. Okay, uh, let's, let's begin with her name. So commonly at the moment, she is referred to as Mary of Magdala. There's this sense that... Okay, all we need to know about her is she, she came from this town called Magdala. And I have been picking over that because the name Magdalene has these different possible meanings. It, it can mean of the tower. And the fourth century Christian scholar Jerome, he said that she was given the name Magdalene because she was a tower of faith. You know, it is actually a special name that's been given to her. So I, I've been rather intrigued by this idea of her having a special name because the rest of Jesus' 12 envoys, nicknames are quite prominent among them. Like Simon is called Petros, Peter, and the Simon Zelotes or Cananean, uh, meaning the, the zealous or you know, striving one. And if she's got a special name, does it actually mean something about, is it something special about her? Now, the other thing that it can mean is, is magnified. Magdalitha in Aramaic can mean magnified. And does that mean that she had a special place among the female disciples of Jesus? She does seem to be always first <laughs> in the list and it's her that is given the special responsibility of going to the tomb and uh, doing the duties that a, a close female relative was expected to do at the tomb. So there's something about her that implies a special relationship between her and Jesus, and um, that they maybe, uh, uh, she is someone that is, you know, if we're going back to the two by two, uh, the idea that, that the apostles, the male apostles, had women who were with them on their mission, was she also particularly with Jesus, helping Jesus in, in the mission in, in Galilee, helping in terms of the gendered world that they were encountering in ancient Galilee. But that idea that she's preeminent and that she's incredibly close to Jesus, and she's very much loved by Jesus, is there in the second century in quite a number of texts. And we know that the Gnostics particularly esteemed that special relationship, and they wrote about it in their texts, like in the Gospel of Philip, very close relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. But it's also there in other texts as well that aren't Gnostic, for example, in the Gospel of Peter, when Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, um, the Gospel of Peter isn't in the New Testament, it's a second century text, but it's largely mainstream. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb because she needed to do the things women do for those that are particularly loved by, by them. You know, there is a special relationship and she brings friends with her, but it's actually her relationship with Jesus that is paramount. So, yes, I think um, Mary Magdalene, she was the leader of the women and had the special relationship with Jesus. But at the same time, we mustn't forget about all the other women. And this is what, as Helen said, this is what 
we are really trying to do and not starting off with Mary Magdalene and Mary the Mother because in uh, Mark 15 and in other places, there's a reference to the many women who are with Jesus in Galilee. Now you talk, you, I mean, at that mention of the Gnostics, you know, I, I should mention for the listeners that one of your lines of evidence often is to say, look, these women, you know, there was a second century cult based on them. You know, we find various of these figures. You say they were obviously important because we've got other texts showing that a whole separate kind of cult formed around them. And I think one of those ones for whom we've got that evidence is, is Salome, not the, not the famous Oscar Wilde daughter of Herod Salome, but, mm. but the other Salome. Tell us a bit about her. Salome, Salome, you say Salome. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry. Salome, Salome. <laughs> um, yes, so th this is the, the, the named woman we started off with, and it was this idea that, okay, she just turns up as Salome in the Gospel of Mark in the same way that the Gospel of Mark can talk about Simon of Cyrene, the, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as if everyone is going, oh, Alexander and Rufus, right, okay, that's who he is. So when you have her mentioned, there's a, a certain knowingness about who she is. But she does seem to be connected with James and James the, the Younger and Joseph in, in this list of people as, as children of Mary, who is one of the women at the cross, and the question is, if, if, is this Mary the mother of Jesus? Because that's actually, these are actually the names of Jesus' brothers. And if Salome is with them, then it means she's Jesus' sister. She turns up in the second century in a number of uh, Gnostic texts. Again, just there she is, Salome. And she's there with Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene and Salome are the big two in terms of the female disciples of Jesus who were interacting with him. So it would kind of make sense if we had Mary Magdalene as his companion in terms of his mission and leader of the women, and Salome as his sister being especially remembered and, and having conversations with, with him. But Celsus, a second century anti-Christian philosopher who wrote huge amount about how wrong the Christians were, scoffed at these women who were leading certain Christian groups and mentions Mariame, Martha and Salome as being leaders of Christian groups as a very bad thing. Just how terrible are these Christians that they have these women who are leading these groups? So we know that her memory was continuing on in the second century as someone very important. Yeah, I mean, this, these attacks from Celsus, which I think you, you quote Oregon attempting to attack Celsus in, in due course, mm -hmm. um, were they, and, and attacks like them, do you think what was behind the occlusion of all these women? If they were leading, if they were leading missions, if they were leading groups of Christians in the second century, and they've sort of vanished from the written record. Was that, do you think, essentially, a, we've got to do our PR better, let's write these women out of the story? Yes, I mean, that, that's, that's a large part of what we think is happening here. I mean, Celsus's evidence is absolutely fundamental to all of this. As you say, we've only got Celsus's arguments through the counter-argument of Origen, but still, I think we get a pretty good view from Origen. And, and it's the kind of thing, I think, that a lot of 
well-educated pagans would think about Christianity. You know, they, they would think it was, it was uh, coming amongst the lower classes. Women were particularly prevalent there. There were children. There were, it, it just didn't feel right to them. It felt like some kind of superstition. And I think it, uh, solstice is so important for this in, in filling in that, that sort of second century evidence for th- this is why Christians would have had no particular reason to mention women and all all sorts of reasons to, to downplay their involvement because to, to a Roman a religion that has too many women in it is just a bad thing and I, I think Celsus is probably representative of, of a, lo- a widespread feeling certainly amongst elite Romans when they when they encounter Christianity. Well I think, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but thank you very much, both of you. It was fascinating to hear. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.